Section six of Mimic Live. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly S. Taylor. Stella by Anna Cora Mawick Ritchie. Chapter six. Very weary were the eyes that Stella unclosed on the morrow. Another morning! Oh, that I could rest! and she turned upon her pillow, yielding for an instant to a delicious drowsiness. But the multitudinous occupations of the day crowded upon her remembrance. Her energizing will conquered physical lassitude. She sprang up with a bound. A dull, heavy pain, the consequence of her last night's misadventure, still lingered about her head. But she was now an actress, Private sufferings, private grievances, all private emotions must be swept aside before the public servitude to which she had enslaved herself. The Lady of Lyon would be rehearsed at ten o'clock. The reading of a new play was announced to take place in the green room at twelve, a drama which was to be performed on Friday for Mr. Tennant's benefit, and this was Wednesday. The hour for rehearsal arrived only too soon. To Stella's delight, she found that Miss Fairfax enacted Madame de Chappelle's. Claude's widowed mother was entrusted to the delineation of an odd-looking, shriveled-up little lady at whose wiry motions, penny-trumpet voice, and original readings Stella could hardly repress her mirth. This singular personage familiarly seized her hand behind the scenes and glibly accosted her. How do you do, my dear? I ought to know you, since you're to be one of us. Made a hint, I hear. Glad of it. Good-looking, tolerable figure, fine voice, passion for the stage, no doubt. Just the case with me. Nothing like it, I say. Can't exist without acting. It's meat and drink. Nobody here to introduce me. My name's Puddle, second old woman of the establishment. How Mrs. Puddle strayed into a profession for which she possessed not a single qualification was a mystery. Engagements she obtained through her willingness to accept the smallest of salaries without stipulating about parts. Her most remarkable attainment was... A faculty of transmuting, by species of mental alchemy, sublime sentiments into commonplace absurdities, of unidealizing the most elevated characters by her prosaic personation. She often de declared her determination to render herself intelligible to the audience. It was not unusual for her to search out in a dictionary the choice words of her role and for the author's expression substitute the lexicon definition if the prompter remonstrated she indignantly asked how the people were to understand what she was talking about if she adhered to the text she did not comprehend it herself how should they her literal mind converted everything into matter-of-fact. Even technical stage directions were all translated, O.P. de la Lettre. 
a rehearsal seldom passed during which her ludicrous idiosyncrasy did not create an uproar of merriment she was re-summoned to the stage just as she was addressing stella mrs pottle held in great awe the pompous mr tennant afraid to approach him too nearly she frisked about him with timorous movements and was constantly in his way barely escaping the wide sweep of his arm or his huge stride all down left ordered the tragedian crossing into a right-hand corner at this command mrs pottle soberly gathered her garments around her and gently laid herself down on the left of the stage shouts of laughter resounded on every side mr tennant's back was turned but fisk caper of delight as he remarked there she's at it again ain't it funny to have pottle rehearsing caused the actor to look around when he marched up to where she meekly lay mrs pottle was in mortal dread that he was about to trample her but she dared not move will you have done with your fooleries woman what do you mean by lying there he bellowed out you told me to fall down left whined mrs pottle it was more convenient lying down for the business this morning i'll make you the fall all right at night never you fear the dignity of mr tennant was in decided peril but he recovered himself before it was lowered by any mirthful manifestation place yourself on the left hand toward the corner that's what i meant mrs pottle rose with alacrity and obeyed she was strongly tempted to argue with mr tennant about the correctness of his expressions but he was too august a personage to be taken to task a short time afterwards she stationed herself directly between him and the person whom he was addressing mr tennant gave her a slight admonitory shove at the same time saying back up my good woman back up back up repeated mrs pottle in a puzzled tone back up oh dearie me she caught the eye of a mischievous fisk he made a pantomimic action in the imitation of an indignant gray malkin mrs pottle nodded thankfully and essayed to copy the feline attitude didn't you hear me tell you to get out of the way repeated tennant what are you doing there i'm backing up the best i can faltered mrs pottle vigorously jerking up her shoulders only i quite haven't got the knack of it yet fisk turned to somerset in the exuberance of his delight mr tennant's wrath only augmented mrs pottle's confusion and increased her vagarities Claude entertained a most unfilial desire to suppress his mother without ceremony. When the rehearsal was over, the company reluctantly collected in the green room. Stella was surprised at the discontented tone of their remarks. What was the use, they asked, of Mr. Belton's insisting on the old-fashioned idea of a green room reading? Hundreds of theatres got up new plays without the actors being bothered with anything but their own parts. Scarcely any of them had the remotest idea of the plot. What's the play about? was a common question, after it had been enacted for almost a week. 
And didn't everything go on just as well? Leave the plot to the audience. The actors had enough to do in attending to their own characters. The new drama required four female representatives. Stella, Mrs. Fairfax, Mrs. Pottle, and Miss Doran. This was Stella's first introduction into the green room, though she had once or twice before stood at the threshold. She seated herself beside Mrs. Fairfax. Mrs. Pottle crowded her diminutive person into a small compass on the other side and drew from her pocket a mammoth woolen stocking, partially knitted. Mrs. Fairfax occupied herself in hemming lace ruffles. Miss Doran scribbled a note. Mr. Martin lay moaning on one sofa. Mr. Doran was stretched at full length on the other. Mr. Swain whittled a stick as he leaned over Miss Doran's chair and talked to her in whispers. Mr. Conklin practiced attitudes before the mirror. Mr. Tennant was forced to absent himself owing to the severe indisposition of his wife. Several members of the company were venting their impatience and displeasure in no very measured terms when Mr. Belton entered, accompanied by the author. Mr. Percy was formally introduced. Mr. Belton drew a table into the center of the room and placed a chair for the fluttered dramatist. After he opened his manuscript, he looked around as though about to utter a few words by way of preface, but the intention was crushed in embryo. He bent over his book again and commenced reading Love's Triumphs. Not one-third of the pages had been turned when a loud yawn from Mr. Doran was followed by a general titter. Could it have escaped Mr. Piercy's ears? He gave no sign of hearing. A second and third yawn followed. Then Mr. Martin groaned aloud. The author looked up and looked down again and paused. Do not be disturbed, said Mr. Belton apologetically. Mr. Martin is a great sufferer. We are also accustomed to hear him complain that we hardly notice him. Mr. Percy proceeded. He had now reached what he considered a magnificent situation in the third act. His delivery became more animated. He was even betrayed into a few gesticulations. Miss Doring giggled. Mr. Percy laid down the book abruptly. The manager considered it prudent to remain oblivious of the interruption, and the author was compelled to continue. He now read in a lower, more subdued tone, and constantly looked up to watch the countenances of his unreceptive auditors. Upon one face alone he perused neither weariness nor contempt. One beautiful face was turned to his enrapt attention. From that moment he no longer heard the moans of Mr. Martin, the yawns of Mr. Doran, the whispered criticisms of the actors. Stella was his entire audience, and when she lifted her handkerchief to hide a starting tear, the young poet felt his brows wreathed with invisible laurels. The play was gemmed with noble flashes of eloquence, but it lacked broad dramatic effects. It was fitted for the enactment of poets before an audience of poets. When the reading was over, the parts were distributed by Mr. Belton, 
Stella was to personate the heroine, Miss Doran, her rival, Miss Fairfax, the mother of the latter, and Mrs. Pottle. Mrs. Pottle, when her part was handed to her, exclaimed with a puny shriek, Bless us if I ain't a queen! It will just ruin me to get a cotton velvet and foil paper enough to, for a robe and crown. You? They have given Queen Eleanor to you? said the author, greatly discomposed. Mr. Belton silenced him by a plight. I have cast the play to the best advantage according to the strength of my company. You have two heroines and two old women. Of the latter, Mrs. Fairfax takes the first, Mrs. Pottle the second. The company were dismissed, and Mr. Percy was doomed to listen to not a few disparaging remarks and complaints as they departed. The new play was to be rehearsed after the rehearsal of Evadne, on the ensuing morning. The author had been presented to Mr. Tennant by an influential editorial friend. The play was accepted chiefly with a view to propitiate a Nestor of the press. Perdita redeemed her promise. The lace was brought in due time. Mattie, who received it, entreated her to sit down and rest, for she was breathless from the exertion of running. Her wan face and drooping eyelids testified that she had not slept since she received the order. "'What a odd life you do lead,' said Mattie compassionately. "'No harder than that of others, and it will not last always. When I am troubled and worn out, I have sweet visions of another life where rest and peace will be given. My mother has found that life, and so shall we in good time.' We only have to wait patiently and do our best. Poor child, is death the best thing you can find in life? My mother believed it to be the best thing in hers. She said so in her dying hour. She gave me counsel that comes back to me when I am sorrowful. I often hear her voice as plainly as though she were near me. I often think she is near me. People laugh and call me superstitious and a fool when I say so, but I am sure of her presence. I know that our Heavenly Father permits her to watch over her poor orphans. When I do a good action, it is my mother's spirit that prompts me. Often I abstain from a wrong one, because the eyes of God and my mother are upon me. And God would seem far off, but for my mother, through whom he is near. You will almost persuade me that you are happy, in spite of this wretched kind of life. I am too busy to be miserable. Let me help you to sew on that lace. It's getting late. You will not have it finished. What a beautiful dress! Mattie accepted the offer for the sake of retaining the young girl near her, and conversing with her, this snowy dove, trooping with crows, bore in her mouth an olive branch for the great ark of the hereafter. God for his service needeth not proud work of human skill. They please him best who labor most in peace to do his will. Stella went to the theater that night through a pelting storm. In common with all nervous temperaments, she was subject to skyey influences. The atmosphere had a depressing effect on her spirits. 
the costly attire of the haughty beauty of Lyon was assumed almost in silence. Indeed, there was an unwanted quietude about the whole establishment. Even Fisk shouted his last music in a less hilarious tone than customary. She did not descend to the stage until summoned, just before the rising of the curtain. Floyd was reconnoitering the audience through the secret aperture. When he caught sight of Stella, he ran up to her, but his invariable, such a house, such a house, was followed by a doleful, oh, 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 and an expressive wringing of the hands instead of the usual lively friction. Got your bouquet? asked Frisk, pursely. My bouquet? No, I, I have none. I forgot that Pauline should have one. Did your beau buy you one? What a sell. Give him his walking ticket. Well, here's a beautiful flower sent by Claude to Miss Pauline. I'm his messenger. He didn't pay me nothing, though. He left that to you. And he thrust into her hand a soiled, coarsely made bunch of artificial flowers. Stella received them with reluctance and vexation, but there was no time for remonstrance. The prompter's warning bell had sounded. She took her seat in Madame de Chapelle's boudoir and bent over the fictitious nosegay as though it excelled delicious perfume. The curtain rose. How cheerless looked those rows of happed, empty boxes. The play had been worn threadbare. That circumstance, combined with the tempestuous weather, accounted for the meager audience. Stella was only welcomed by a faint round, which chilled rather than inspired her. During the first two acts, there was nothing striking in her performance. It was ladylike, but cold. The acting of Mr. Tennant was unusually tame. His manner was hurried and abstracted. His thoughts were with his suffering wife. In the garden scene, when Claude paints to Pauline the home to which he would lead her, Stella, who should have represented the entranced, enamored listener, was perplexed and distressed by Mr. Tennant's involuntary asides, such as the following. A palace lifting to eternal summer. The doctor. The doctor is at the wing. Its marble walls from out a glossy bower of... All oh, the medicine don't help her. Of coolest foliage, musical with birds, whose songs should syllable... I wonder if she's worse. Thy name. What can he want? I must come to Q's. Don't mind the cutting. Mr. Tennant's eyes had wandered from Pauline's face to that of the medical gentleman standing at the side scenes. Claude now mangled the author a libidium, and, curtailing his courtship within the narrowest limits, brought the scene to a close and hurried Pauline from the stage. As Stella made her exit through the dorm of Madame de Chapelle's residence, she encountered two carpenters carrying Mr. Martin in a chair. The inclement weather had augmented his rheumatic effects. He appeared to be suffering excruciatingly. The carpenters placed the chair at the entrance he designated. Fist stood behind the invalid, making thrust at imaginary individuals with a pair of fold. Lift me up, boys, said Mr. Martin. Fisk, you young rascal, be ready with the foils. 
the actor was raised to his feet with some difficulty but the moment his cue was given he seized the foils walking firmly onto the stage and a few minutes afterward was engaged in active combat with claude who found that he could not disarm him without exerting his utmost skill well what do you think of that asked mrs fairfax who stood beside stella watching the combatants wonderful most wonderful mind over matter you see which is victorious in an actor's life would a single individual in that audience believe on hearsay what we have just witnessed yet every theatre can afford instances of equal or more marvellous power of will the drama of the lady of lyon has been so pertinaciously hunted down by critics that there is no temptation to dwell upon its striking situations the author has planned a series of prominent points all unmistakable as signposts on a turnpike a succession of dramatic traps in which the hands of the audiences are invariably taken captive these stella could not miss it was only in the fifth act that she rose above her author and filled out and perfected his incomplete portraiture the gorgeous garments with which pauline had bedecked herself in the days of her untamed pride were exchanged for a white muslin robe fastened with bunches of purple violets the emblems of mourning and a few of those grief betokening flowers were scattered among her dishevelled locks that pauline could not recognize her husband after an absence of two years because he wore a moustache was habituated in military dress and his presence was unanticipated seemed an improbability which stella reconciled by never lifting her eyes from the ground as she addressed him in heartbroken accents and when he spoke her sobs drowned the tones of the well-known and well-loved voice that pauline's confidential communication could have been made in a room occupied by her father mother affianced husband the notary etc is an obvious absurdity when the words of the text are declaimed according to custom in an elevated tone the credulity of the spectators is too largely drawn upon when they are required to believe that only two of the party present are not afflicted with deafness but every word that stella uttered was spoken in a whisper which though distinct to the audience conveyed the impression that it reached claude's ear alone this unwanted reality imparted to the scene which albeit touching and effective offends against probability stella's personation of the proud beauty was by no means faultless it occasionally was marred by too rapid transitions lacking artistic smoothness an exuberance of gesticulation an absence of repose the inevitable failings of a novice yet her spontaneity impulsive ardor flexibility of features and motion her sculpturesque grace quickened that weather-dulled audience and charmed them into forgetfulness of her shortcomings the sovereignty of genius made its presence felt and compelled homage even from her unwilling associates stella's debut and second appearance had only been chronicled in the public journals by a few stereotyped phrases emanating probably from the licensed puffer of the theatre but now the clarion note of praise was sounded loudly the press awoke from its apathy 
the tide of popular approval bore her aloft in triumphant waves the fickle public had already forgotten the worshipped lydia talbot and with ready hands lifted up a new idol upon her empty pedestal stella began to taste the intoxicating sweetness of adulation that honeyed poison so pernicious to the untried soul so tasteless to the absorbed intellectual artist when she becomes truly enamoured of her vocation complimentary letters poems elaborate laudatory notices daily greeted her eyes at first she read them with avidity and treasured them up with proud satisfaction of floral gifts she received almost hourly offerings but her mind was so much engrossed by her professional duties that the flattering testimonials which for a day enchanted by their novelty quickly lost all value critiques and letters were glanced over not read bouquets consigned unexamined to mattie's care all flattering demonstrations were treated with strange ingratitude but it was the ingratitude of a preoccupied mind which had no leisure for thankfulness a dangerous mental stage too surely developed by sudden and brilliant success but oftentimes corrected by the vicissitudes to which the most favored artist is inevitably subjected somewhat later in her career end of section six